Hi, I'm Josh Van Burkle. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. How are you guys going? Doing okay? Oh my gosh. Do you guys know how conversation works? Like it's... Hey, hey, let's... Uh, you know, and in all seriousness, they've done a huge amount of research. I don't know who they are, but they've done a huge amount of research, and they have proven conclusively that the single least effective way to communicate is to have one person up the front monologuing for half an hour. So what they've discovered is that the more that you engage with this person, the more you get out of the content. So it's really up to you whether you want to get a lot out of the content or whether you want to get a little bit out of this morning. A lot of it comes down to how much you want to kind of participate and engage because it keeps your brain focused. So how are you guys going this morning? Wow. So you know you're like into it. What's he going to say next? It's so super exciting. Oh, look at that. You jumped to that slide. This is where I wanted to start because that was going to be like a big reveal, but that's okay. So, uh, what's the time? Five past 11. I'm, I'm like legit just weighing up with a, what even to say. Okay. Um, I think what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kick into a, a new series, which is exciting. Woohoo indeed. Well done. You got a lot more out of that point than anybody else. We're going to kick into a new series, but there's a couple of caveats on this series. Number one caveat, I've got no idea how long it's going to go for. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to last four weeks or four months, eight weeks, two weeks, ten weeks, could end it tomorrow. I've got no idea how long it's going to last. And the reason for that caveat is because of caveat number two, which is that I actually have no idea uh, how to teach this series. Wow. Um, because it's not something that I think I have a great deal of experience in. So I think what's going to happen, church, is that uh, I'll spend my week asking God what to do, or whoever is sharing on Sunday will spend their week asking God what to do, and then we'll come on Sunday and I'll say, well, this is like what I feel like God said this week, let's all learn this lesson together. Is that Okay. Because I'd be telling a big fat porky if I said, man, I'm smashing this out of the park and let me tell you how to do what I do. Because what I want to talk about and and what I think we need to camp on for this next wee while, brace yourself for the shock, is becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a huge difference between believing in God and following God. There's a big difference between believing in the Bible and following the Bible. There's a big difference between believing in the teachings of Jesus Christ and following the teachings of Jesus Christ. I heard somebody say once, and I think I agree, they said the biggest gap in the church today is the gap between what we know and what we do. Certainly, I think in the Western world, with all of the available technology and the multiple Bible verses, uh, Bible versions and apps and YouTube videos and the ease with which we can come along to church on a Sunday morning or not, or the podcasts we can listen to, how, how many people would say that we're not exactly suffering from a knowledge problem? But we are, I think, really suffering from an obedience problem. And we can dig into what some of those reasons might be perhaps throughout the series. But 
the more I kind of talk to God about stuff and the more I sort of examine my life, and I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to spend time introspectively looking at yourself and going, God, where am I at? You know, there's a verse, and I think it's, mm, I want to say Second Corinthians, but I could be wrong. Someone can look it up while I'm preaching. But Paul says, hey, you need to examine yourself to see whether you're still in the faith. Like, actually spend time to look at yourself. And human beings, as a rule, we're really terrible at actually taking the time to dig into ourselves and go, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, like, we get angry, and we're just like, I don't know why I'm angry. I'm just angry. It's in a bad mood, right? I can't tell you the number of times I've said to my wife, why, why, are, you, why are you in this mood? I don't know. I'm just in this mood. To be fair, she says it to me all the time as well. But when you actually stop and and dig down into why you are the way you are, sometimes you find some really interesting stuff. For example, I am mortified, like beyond terrified of spiders, which is completely rational because they're horrific. (laughs) But do do you know that, that human beings are only born with two fears? Do you know that? There's only two fears that you are born with. One is the fear of loud noises. That's why, even as an adult, if some punk kid pops a balloon behind your back, you almost have a heart attack. And if you, if you make a loud noise near a baby, you'll see a baby startle reflex. Because we're born with that startle reflex to loud noises. We're also born with a fear of falling, which is why if you get a baby, and I don't recommend this, but if you're your own kid, you can do what you want, and you hold them and then you go, whoa, you'll see them go... And how many times have you been in bed just about to fall asleep and then out of nowhere you feel like you've fallen off a cliff and your whole body's like, Whoa! what the heck is that about? So these are the two fears that, that have been you know, physiologically proven that we are born with, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. But every other fear that you have in your life, including the fear of spiders, you were not born with. You have picked that up somewhere. So one day I was at home and I think it was, it was, I saw one of my kids see a spider and react out of fear to a spider. And I thought, that's my fault. They've learned that from me. And then, I think about, and then I saw one of the girls go and get some toilet paper and pick it up. And I thought, well, they've learned that from Liz. So that's good. <laughs> but how is it that I'm scared of spiders? And so one day I decided to find out why am I scared of spiders. And so I just spent some time like going back. Going, I was like, one of the questions I asked was, well, when did you first start getting scared of spiders? And I realized that it was from a couple of years where we lived uh, in Papua New Guinea. And I was in Papua New Guinea from the ages of six to eight and a half. Very, very, you know, formable years. Like you remember a lot from when you were six, seven and eight years old. And they just had these spiders in Papua New Guinea that were like as big as your hand. They had very, very skinny bodies, like maybe, you know, the size of my pointer, but their legs just were huge, and they'd spin these huge webs, and they would catch birds. What the? And, and I vividly remember, as a six or seven-year-old, walking, you know, just down a path, and just walking into this spider web that had been spun between two trees, and seeing the spider just off into the... At the bushes. And the other thing they would do is the locusts would catch them and they'd put them on sticks and like long sticks, maybe a meter long, and they'd just cook them over open flames. And then the spiders would, would run up the stick and once they got past the halfway mark, they'd just reach over, grab the back and then spin the stick around so they ended up running. And, and, and they made this really high-pitched whining sound that you could hear, which I think was literally just their, their body cooking. And then they would just that explode, but the locals told me that that was the spider screaming. 
So, do we understand why I am scared of spiders? Right? Because, because I, they're all scared of spiders now, yeah, yeah. It's because I lived in a freaking horror movie for two and a half years. That's why I'm scared of spiders, but, right? So my point is, though, that you, you, there is always a reason why you are what you are. And this is a complete, you know, like Josh hasn't prepared his message well enough tangent. But, you know, take some time to stop and ask yourself, why, why am I the way? Why, why do I believe what I believe? Why is my theology my theology? Where has that come from? Where did I learn that? Because you weren't born with your theology. You weren't born with your belief system. You weren't born with what you think is right and wrong, your moral compass. Where did that come from? And so I've been talking to God about, you know, just all this kind of stuff. And I felt like God said, hey, this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so my job this morning is to just uh, define what a disciple of Jesus Christ is and to give you a really strong definition picture so that you can decide for yourself whether this is a journey you want to go on. Because this is a pretty intense journey. I I actually think that God's going to take us pretty deep into some different things over the next few weeks, but hand on heart, I've got no idea what they are. At this stage, Gerhard's supposed to be preaching next Sunday, and he texted me and said, what do you want me to preach on? I said, I don't know. You'll have to wait till after Sunday, and then I'll see if I've got any more of an idea. You know, stressful for him. So what is a disciple? Um, I've used a couple of these definitions before, but Andreas J. Kostenberger, who wrote a book called Jesus as Rabbi in the Fourth Gospel, says this, discipleship is not the same as being a student in the modern sense. One of the things that we have to recognize, and I've had a good few chats with John Pritchard about this, is that the Bible was not written in today's language, and it wasn't written in today's culture, and it wasn't written you know, to today's you know, our people group. And so when we read the word disciple, we westernize it. We think, oh, disciple means there's a bunch of kids sitting in a class. You know, Josh is teaching on Bible, you know, the book of Genesis, and he's discipling this group. And then they go home, and they live their life, and then they come back in a fortnight. And he does, you know, step two of the Bible class, because that's what you do in a disciple. You're a student in a class. That's how we kind of define discipleship. But that's not what discipleship meant in the Bible. So when Jesus talks about us becoming his disciples, we need to understand what does he mean when he says disciple. And so a disciple, this is according to Andreas, a disciple in the ancient biblical world actively imitated both the life and teaching of the master. That was the job of the disciple, to actively imitate. Uh, Edward Swee, in The Dust of the Rabbi, clarifying discipleship for faith transformation today, says it was a deliberate apprenticeship which made the fully formed disciple a living copy of the master. I read an article by a Jewish author during the week, Joseph Shulin, who said the object of discipleship is to follow, emulate, copy, duplicate, and replicate your rabbi all while serving him. This is what we need to wrap our head around, is that discipleship in the context of the Bible, when Jesus talks about us becoming his disciples, he's talking about us replicating him, emulating him, copying him, duplicating him, following him. It is an extremely intense relationship. 
In fact, I was reading again during the week because I wanted to get some understanding around what discipleship looks like in Jewish culture. And even today, I was reading an article uh, from a guy who said that if you uh, are aware of the different Hasidic rabbis in Israel, you can go to Israel and you can identify who each Jewish disciple is following by the hats that they wear. He said, because every rabbi buys their hats from a different place and they are different heights and different thicknesses and they're made out of different furs. And even in the height of Israeli summer, he said, you will see Hasidic Jews walking around with these super hot hats on. And he said, and even if there is only one shop in the world that sells that particular hat, that is where the disciple will buy their hat from. A a disciple in Jesus' day just his goal or her goal was to resemble their rabbi so closely that if you were to encounter them, it would be the same as encountering their rabbi. They would buy their clothes from the same shops. They would eat the same kind of food. They would walk the way that they walk. There's even, I was reading about it during the week, this is a little bit gross, but there's even an urban legend within Judaism about one particular disciple sneaking into his rabbi's bedroom and hiding so he could watch him with his wife in order to copy that. Like this, I'm talking like this is how seriously they take it. This is what discipleship meant in Jesus' day. It meant you copy everything that I do. And what got me thinking about this, right? is that I was watching an interview with uh, the guy that plays Jesus in The Chosen. His name's, uh, what's his name? Joe, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. And he was just sitting on the couch talking to the director of the series, and the director said to him, man, how do you handle the pressure, like the weight of playing Jesus? And he said, do people kind of get you confused between, you know, you, Jonathan, and Jesus? And he said, yeah, actually, he said, very often, if I'm out in public, people will come up to him, and they've only ever seen him as Jesus, and so they'll ask him to pray for them, or they'll just want to touch him, and he's like, look, I'm not Jesus, I'm just Jonathan, like, I'm just playing a role. And he said, but here's what I do. He said, when I, when I get to the set, like I'm Jonathan, and then I'll go into my trailer and I'll get wardrobed up. And then I come out of the trailer and now I look like Jesus. And he said, from the time that I step out and I'm dressed like Jesus, he said, my mindset is, okay, now I'm Jesus. And he said, and I just, in every aspect, I will try and act like Jesus acted. Whether I'm having lunch with someone, whether we're just having a conversation in between takes, whether we're waiting for the production team to get the lights sorted. He said, if I am there, I am, I am Jesus. Um, which is just called method acting, right? You hear so many actors talk about that. You know, like they'll, they'll adopt an accent for their role and then you'll find out afterwards they just talked in that accent the whole time they were filming the movie. Even when they went home, they talked in that accent. They never broke. It's called method acting. But when Jonathan said, he said, I just act like Jesus. And he said, my goal is, he said, my goal is that anyone that I interact with, anyone that I talk with, anyone that I bump into, that they would feel that they are interacting with the real Jesus, And when he said that, I felt like God said to me, that's discipleship. Like that's that's what it is. It's just going, I'm gonna I'm gonna put Jesus on and I'm not taking him off. And I don't think we do this very well in church. And I don't think that we when we read the Bible and we read Jesus saying, Hey, you need to be my disciples, or you know, follow me, and we're like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll follow Jesus. It's like, no. In Jesus' day, when he said, follow me, that was like, and super, like you, you lose your whole identity in him. 
you end, he starts, right? And what's fascinating is that in Luke chapter 14, and we'll look at this, and then maybe we'll have a chat about it, I don't know. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus three times says, unless you do this thing, you can't be my disciple. Three separate things, three times in the space of like eight verses. And so we're going to look at that this morning because I want, again, I want you to be really cognizant of what this is going to cost you if you want to go on this journey. If you want to get on board the train, this is where we're going, but it's not free. And there's a huge part of me that kind of goes, you know, I'd sympathize with anyone who just went, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. But, I'm just going to say it, if you don't want to do it, why are you here? I just had to say it. Like, like, again, that's like, you know, doing that thing where you look inside of yourself. Like, why do, you, why do I go to church? Ask yourself that question. Why do I go to church? Because my friends are there? Because I get to, you know, laugh on the way home about Josh's sweat patches? Like, I'm aware. Halfway through worship, I was like, ah, oh, that's right. I promised myself I wouldn't wear that T-shirt. And then I did. So let's look, at, let's look at these three things. In fact, before we do, really quickly, just in case you were here this morning, you're going, you know what, I hear what you're saying, like copy Jesus, copy Jesus, but it doesn't sound very authentic. It doesn't sound like that's really me. Like if I'm just pretending to be somebody else or pretending to respond the way that Jesus responded, is, really, is that really authentic? Is that really genuine? Or am I just faking it? And, you know, I want to just circle back to that, that passage where it says that we actively imitate. We don't theologically imitate. We don't metaphorically imitate. We actively imitate. And the key to that word is in the first three letters, right? We actively imitate. Um, but I did some research during the week. You guys owe me, man. I did so much research for these, these things. Um, thank God for Wikipedia. And I stumbled across this lady called Lydia M. Hopper, who is the Director of Behavioral Management at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. This lady knows what she's talking about. She's written books on imitation. And the first thing I learned is that imitation is different to mirroring. Okay, Mirroring is when you imitate somebody's behavior at a subconscious level. So Abel's just like scratching his chin. If I just went like that without even realizing that I was doing it, oh, Rose is doing it too. Now you're all doing it. That's mirroring. Well, I actually watched a Tony Robbins video once where he reckoned he could get someone at a table across the room to do what he was doing. He just waited till they were looking in his general direction, and then he took a drink out of his glass, and he did it like six or seven times in a row. And then he said to the camera, he goes, now watch this. And he reached for his glass, and across the room, the person reached for their glass. and did it. He's like, that's mirroring. It's, it's crazy. But that's subconscious, but imitating is very conscious. So imitation is a behavior whereby an individual observes and replicates another behavior, right? So we know what imitation is. You see somebody do something, you do it. Monkey see, monkey do, right? And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. But then she made this comment. She said, imitation is also a form of behavior that leads to the development of traditions and ultimately our culture. And then she launched into this huge explanation about how kids learn what is appropriate, what is not appropriate by imitating their parents. And she said, you know, you have very young kids and they start by, they don't start speaking their own language, their own words. They start by imitating the words that you say, don't they? Anyone that's ever raised kids, you'd be like, say goodbye to daddy. And they go, bye-bye daddy. Like they copy 
that's, that's how you develop identity and how you develop culture. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're like, well, if I'm just going to be imitating Jesus and imitating Jesus, then really, is that, is that authentic? This is actually how you develop your identity and your culture through imitation. It's what you did all the way through growing up. You're just doing it now to Jesus. So let's have a look at this passage. These three things that Jesus said. So again, my goal this morning is to say, hey, this is what we're going after. This is what discipleship looks like. And this is what Jesus says it will cost you. So in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33, he says, large crowds were walking along with Jesus when he turned and said. Now, let's just pause there for a second. The way that uh, disciples would choose their rabbis in the New Testament is they would, all the rabbis would come out and the rabbis would teach based on their understanding of scriptures. And then as a student, once you'd sort of qualified to call yourself, a, you had to go through various educational, you know, um, benchmarks. Not anyone could just choose to be a disciple. You had to kind of qualify to be able to do it. But the disciple would choose their rabbi. One of the things that's different about Jesus is that he chose his disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, hey, follow me. That was the opposite of how they did it. What they would do is the rabbis would come out and they would say, this is what I think this passage of scripture means. This is how I interpret it. And then another rabbi would say, well, I interpret this passage of scripture this way and this is what I think it means. And then you as a disciple would go, I like that one. That one really resonates with me. And then when the rabbi gets up and leaves, you would go over and you would follow the rabbi off. And that was you declaring to everybody around, I have chosen my rabbi. I am following this rabbi. And according to the Jewish tradition, you would follow so closely that the dirt from their sandals would flick up and hit your robe. That is how closely you would follow the rabbi. So when Jesus says, it says, large crowds were walking along with Jesus when he turned and said. What's, what the Bible is saying here is that these large crowds have said, he's my rabbi. I'm going to follow this guy. So Jesus is walking along, and there's this whole crowd of people that are following him going, he's my rabbi, I'm his disciple, and Jesus gets irritated because he knows that they don't understand what it means to be his disciple. So I want you to picture this. He's walking along. There's a large crowd of people behind him. Because of the Jewish culture, they're declaring that we're his disciples, we're following him, and Jesus is going, I don't think you know what, what you're signing up for here, guys. And so he turns and he says to them straight off the bat, you cannot be my disciple. That is a weird way to start a sentence, unless that's what he's thinking. So now we've got context, right? You don't just, you're not just walking along, minding, and then just turn around and be like, you can't be my disciple, unless he recognizes that that's what they're sort of trying to place on him. He says, you cannot be my disciple unless, and this is the, uh, the contemporary English version, you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. You cannot follow me unless you love me more than you love your own life. Other translations will say, you cannot follow me or you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. But the reason I've chosen this version is because this is actually what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you have to hate your brother and sister if you wanted me to be my disciple. He's saying you have to, in comparison to how you feel about me, that's what it would almost look like. Like I am so far above your mother and your father in your list of priorities that compared to me, it's almost like, ah, oh, they don't even matter. Like that's, he's saying that's where you need to esteem me. But I think this is a better way of saying it. You have to love me more. So he turns around and he says, number one, all you people following me, here's, here's the deal. One, you can't be my disciple. 
unless I am so far above your priority list to anyone else in your world, your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, your friends. I've got to be number one. That's the first thing he says. And then he says, you cannot be my disciple. This is verse 27. You cannot be my disciple unless you carry your own cross and follow me. I'm not even sure if they would have necessarily understood entirely what that meant. We do because we know, ah, Jesus was crucified and he had to carry his own cross to the crucifixion. We have all this wonderful benefit of hindsight. But if you were there in that moment, you might be like, I don't even know what that means. You'd be familiar with crucifixion because the Romans still used that a lot. And very often it was Jewish people that were crucified. So they would have known it, but not in the context of Jesus having to do it as well. And it was unusual for you to be forced to carry your own cross. And then he, he, he makes this really weird statement. He says, suppose, because obviously, let's say that he's just, let's just go back. Trumpet yourself in this space. He said, you can't be my disciple unless you carry your own cross. Now, around about now, everyone's looking at him like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Where is all of this stuff come from? We were just walking behind you, and now you're just giving us all this stuff. And so Jesus, you can imagine him going, okay, let me explain this to you guys. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. What is the first thing you'll do? Won't you sit down and figure out how much it'll cost and if you have enough money to pay for it? Otherwise, you'll start building the tower, but you won't be able to finish. And then everyone who sees what is happening will laugh at you and they'll say, you started building, you couldn't finish the job. And everyone goes, okay, yep, that makes sense. That's what we would do. And he says, what would a king do if he's only got 10,000 soldiers? to defend himself against a king who's about to attack him with 20,000 soldiers. Before he goes out to battle, he'll sit down and decide if he can win. And if he thinks he won't be able to defend himself, he will send messengers and ask for peace while the other king is still a long way off. And again, everybody goes, yeah, of course you would. That makes total sense. Otherwise, you're going to get annihilated. And then off the back of that, Jesus says, so then you cannot be my disciple unless you give away everything you own. So what's he talking about in those two previous stories? He's talking about counting the cost, isn't he? He's saying, hey, you, you, don't, you don't start trying to build a tower until you've done your budget and worked out whether you are prepared to pay what it's going to cost to build a tower. You don't go to war with someone until you sit down and work out whether you can afford to go to war with this person or whether the cost is going to be too high as far as casualties go. In the same way, he says, you can't be my disciple unless you give away everything that you own. So you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children and your brothers and sisters. You can't be my disciple unless you carry your own cross and follow me. And you can't be my disciple unless you give away everything you own. And don't get stroppy at me because I'm just reading out of the Bible. This is what Jesus said. So when we talk about discipleship and I say, hey, look, I think God wants us to go on this journey where we kind of really challenge ourselves to be a disciple rather than a believer, to be someone that doesn't just believe in God but follows God, doesn't just believe in the teachings of Jesus but actually follows the teaching of Jesus, I thought it would be pertinent to go, well, what does Jesus say it's going to cost us? You're going to be poor. Now, let, let me just say, uh, I had a wee thing about this during the week, and I was like, okay, God, are you saying that I have to give away everything that I have? Like, is that like a literal thing? What, is that, what does that mean? I think what Jesus is saying is that, look, there's three things that are going to really stop you becoming a disciple of mine, three obstacles to discipleship. 
Number one, he says, you've got to love me more than you love anybody else, which means that the first obstacle that's going to stop you from pursuing me and discipling yourself under me is people. People are going to get in the way. They're going to make demands on your time. I mean, how many, we live in a community, like that's healthy. I've got a wife, I've got three kids. They demand my time. And sometimes it's easy for me to justify not spending time with God because I say, well, you know what? I I need to spend time with X, Y, Z. How many times have we done that? We've put our family above spending time with God. And I think, to be honest, in those instances, it's not that God's saying, hey, you need to put me ahead of them, as much as he's saying, well, you have not structured your day very well. If you'd got up a little bit early and put me first, then you would have time to connect with your wife tonight and sit down and watch a movie or whatever it might be. So people stop us from discipleship. Number two, he says you have to carry your own cross. I think that means that pride is a massive obstacle. What he says is that you have to be prepared to submit and lay your life down if you want to be a disciple of mine. And that's huge. Let's just be honest for a second. How many people really want to surrender their independence? I like doing what I want. Yeah, Rose likes doing what she wants. You're engaging a lot in this message, Rose. It's good. Yep, that's right. Yep, I do. And then the third thing I think that can get in the way of discipleship is possessions. I don't think that Jesus was saying, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to go home, put your house on the market, put all your stuff on trade me, live in a cardboard box. I don't think that's what God's saying at all. I think what he's saying is that, again, I have to come first. You have to love me more than you love all of these people. You have to be prepared to lay down your life to follow me. Because if you're a disciple of someone and they get up and they go over there, you get up and you go over there. You follow them when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. And I think, too, he's saying, hey, look, your possessions, they can't be things that hold you back. Uh, One of the other translations which I read said, you need to give everything, you need to sell everything you have in my name, is, is what it said, or give all your possessions away in my name. So I thought, just for the last 10 minutes, and again, I... I'm not remotely qualified to preach on this from an experience level because I think all of these three things stop me from being a disciple of Jesus all the time. And I think if discipleship looks like following Jesus so closely that people can't tell the difference between me and him, then maybe I get it right like this much of the time. Initially, I'll say this and then we'll wrap up. Initially, I thought, okay, disciple of Jesus, what we need to do is we need to look at all the characteristics of Jesus and we need to preach a different week. So we need to preach on kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and mercy and all these things. And then I was just talking to God about it and he was like, that's not, that's not the gospel. He said, that's just good values. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you can preach on kindness and that's great, like we should be kind But lots of people encourage us to be kind. Some of them aren't even Christian. You know, you can encourage people to be generous, and that's great to be generous, but Christians don't own the idea that generosity is healthy. There's plenty of people that aren't Christian that, you know, that encourage generosity. And he said, said, "If if you focus on 
the characteristics of Jesus or how Jesus responded in different situations. He said, you'll come unstuck because he said, you can't, you can't try and copy, duplicate, replicate the outworkings of Jesus unless you understand and copy and duplicate the inward workings of Jesus. Jesus was only able to be so compassionate and loving and forgiving because of the relationship and the connection that he had with the Father. And so if we say, hey, look, Jesus was kind, so Julie, this week, go out and be kind, and Julie goes out and tries to be kind under her own strength, just white-knuckle it, I need to be kind because Jesus is kind, it won't work. But if we say, what did Jesus do to become that kind of person? And we look at it from an input perspective rather than an output perspective. Does that make sense? Like, what was Jesus inputting? If you were following Jesus so closely that the dirt from his sandals was hitting your robe, what was he doing day in and day out? So I think that's where we'll probably, I'm going to box Gerhard into a corner now. That's probably where we'll, where we'll start. But here's what we'll do. I want you just to break into groups of four or five. And I want you to look at the screen and go, okay, of those three things, what do I think is the biggest obstacle for me when it comes to discipleship? If I decide to sign up to Josh's Discipleship Program 101, go on this journey with God around what discipleship is, where do I think I'm going to have the most issue? Is it with putting God above the people in my life? Is it actually going, you know what, I, I really struggle with the idea that I have to surrender everything to Him? Or is it, Actually, I've got a lot of possessions. I've got a certain quality of life that I'm accustomed to. Whenever Josh talks about giving money, I just close my ears because my money is my stuff and I've got it earmarked for different things. Like, what is it? Just be honest with yourself. Maybe you don't need to be that upfront with people in your group, but I encourage you to think about it. So let's just work on a little bit of music, Mike. And I want you to break into groups of four or five. Just turn around, find three or four people, five people, and just have that conversation what is it that is my biggest obstacle to discipleship? And maybe one other question, which I don't have up on the screen. What am I going to do about it? All right. What's my biggest obstacle and what am I going to do about it? If you need to jump up and move to the other side of the church to find someone, you can do that too. That's fine. <laughs>